Oh, cool. And let's see. Ooh. How do I get my? Let's get started. Oh, low battery, of course. Okay, guys, so um, if you have your um, shareware, you're going to open up your shareware. And, huh? Responseware, sorry. Your responseware program, and then you're going to, and it'll ask you on the very top, it'll ask you a question. What does that question say? Join a session. Yes, so that session is going to be ED200. Oh, EM200. <laughs> 710. That's a 200 billing in the 710. So we'll use that if we decide to use this program. EM200710. And join. See if you guys can do that. Okay, great. So back by popular demand, um, we were going to talk, continue every month on a basic lecture. Um, I think last month I did one on GI, perhaps, or airway. It was a respiratory. I don't remember now. But at any rate, I want to kind of cover the basics. So for most of you, this may be repetitive, but I just want to get everyone back on the same playing field. So I have no financial disclosures. Um, in this lecture, we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about how to master the key pharmacologic interventions in an acute COPD exacerbation. We're going to understand the evidence behind the diagnostic tests that come with COPD. You're going to familiarize yourself with who you can safely discharge home and who needs to be admitted. So those are kind of the key components of this lecture. So if you don't, if you take anything home from this, these are the key components, okay? And um, and you know we see a lot of COPD, uh, maybe not so much here at UCI, but um, you know COPD is is very hard to diagnose, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, 
you know, that it oftentimes c people come in with respiratory complaints and we don't know if they have congestive heart failure or COPD or something else. So, well, uh, let's start with the case. Dr. Fruman, we have a 78-year-old female with um, a patient who complains of heart problems, that's what she says, and chronic, a oh, history of heart problems and chronic bronchitis. She's short of breath and has palpitations for several days. Tell me what you want to do. Um, so I would probably get a little bit of more history. Yeah, Doc, I've just, you know, every time I try to breathe, I just can't quite breathe. And my heart's racing, too. And, I, you know, I know I have heart problems. It's for a couple of days. Sometimes, you know, when I lay flat, um, I have trouble breathing and my heart races a little bit more. Um, but sometimes even when I'm sitting up, it, it happens. I've had a cough. The cough's gotten a little bit worse. Um, I don't know, you know, I felt kind of hot, but I didn't take my temperature. And um, that's about it. Uh, you say that you have heart problems and chronic bronchitis. Do you take any medications for these problems? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I take some medicines for my blood pressure and some water pills. No. Mm -mm. Am I supposed to? I'm not sure about that yet. All right. <laughs> um, how far could you walk right now? Well, I, I, I can normally walk several blocks, but, you know, I'm old. I'm 78. You know, it's, and um, it's just now I can do like half a block maybe. I don't know. I can't even get out of the house, so it's so hard. Well, I do have an inhaler. You're talking about an inhaler, right, Dr. Fruman? Okay. Yes. Well, I do have an inhaler. Whoa, I just forgot about that. And I'm having um, chest palpitations, but no chest pain. I don't have any chest pain, just palpitations. And here are my, here are my vital signs, by the way. Have you ever, do you ever had anyone tell you your oxygen is low before? Uh, yeah, people say that I'm generally kind of, they always wonder every time I come to the hospital, is my oxygen low? And I tell them, I don't know, doctors have said that to me before. <laughs> you like how I'm giving you nothing. <laughs> how, how do you ever use No. Well, you can see that she's breathing a little bit fast. Her blood pressure is slightly elevated and her heart rate is fast and irregular. And if you looked at the monitor, it looked kind of funny. And uh, certainly when you... <coughs> Um, when you're when you're examining her, you hear scattered wheezes and um, some lower extremity edema. So you may be thinking, in your differential, according to Dr. Loza, which is very wise, is once when you read that chief complaint and you're walking in there, you're thinking three or four, maybe five things that this patient can have. And so on your list of things are ACS. Mm-hmm. Could have pneumothorax, but probably less likely for a 78-year-old patient to take medical history. Okay, great. So the very good differential. You included all of them, including pulmonary embolism, which is really good. But more questions than answers, right? <clears throat> so you're you're wondering what medications should I start giving this person, right? So you're like, I don't know. Is this congestive heart failure? Is this ACS? Is this COPD? 
unclear at this point. So what medicines am I going to give this patient? You're thinking, how much oxygen should I give this patient? She has an inhaler at home. Is that asthma? Is that COPD? Is this congestive heart failure? Boy, if she has ACS, don't I want those boxcars all filled up, like Dr. Langdorf would say? Or is there a number where I start worrying about reducing her respiratory drive in case she has COPD? Also a very good question. Is an ABG going to be helpful? That probably didn't cross your mind immediately, but at some point in time, your internist may ask you this question. And you may ask yourself this question. Will an ABG be helpful? And what is an ABG going to show you? And how useful is it this B-natriuretic peptide that everyone keeps ordering and no one knows what the hell to do with? So, and, and what does it tell us? I don't know. So let's, maybe we'll figure out a few of these things. But to get back to the topic of the lecture, the lecture is about COPD, right? COPD is a clinical diagnosis. It's based all on symptoms. There is no diagnostic test. There's no blood test. There's no serum marker. There's no set of criteria that really say you have COPD. And, and really, um, you know, it's a change in the patient's baseline dyspnea, cough, and sputum production in terms of quantity and or character. So it's really you saying, you know, do you have any of these things? And if you do, then you have a COPD exacerbation. All right. Pharmacologic interventions. Let's talk a little bit about pharmacological interventions. There's many out there. I, wanna, I want you guys to take home just a few things in your armamentarium. When someone says COPD exacerbation, this is what you should definitely give them. All right, definitely. Numero uno is bronchodilator therapy. Now, you can argue, and the literature argues, whether you want to start them on a beta agonist or an anticholinergic. And some have said there's some benefit in combining both um, and doing this duoneb, which we do. Um, that's, what in, that's what's in a duoneb, if you don't know already. Um, both have excellent safety profiles, so if you wanted to start both, uh, you probably could. Uh, and they're low cost. It's not that expensive. Um, it's not like uh, giving TPA or something like that, so it's not expens expensive at all. And um, the other thing that you should immediately, that should cross your mind, are steroids. So you should, you should really consider giving steroids in a patient who has, who you're, who on the differential that, that's pretty high is COPD. Now an argument always comes up, and I, I think it's valid, is what if the patient has pneumonia? And then is that going to worsen the pneumonia? We'll talk about that a little bit. But even in chest x-ray diagnosed pneumonia, so you have your, your, you know how to diagnose pneumonia, right? That's also a clinical diagnosis, by the way. It's, it's fevers, chills, coughs, sputum production. So. And then if you have a chest x-ray that shows a pneumonia, even in those patients who have COPD and have a diagnosed pneumonia, a consolidation on their chest x-ray, who have received steroids on top of other therapies, do much, much, much better. They stay in the hospital less frequently or for a less duration. And they also, if you send them home, have a less frequent return rate and have less morbidity. So, so steroids, if you're thinking COPD high in your differential, 
bronchodilator therapy, steroids. Um, we'll talk a little bit, of, I won't touch too much about, this is a basic lecture, but the route of steroids and, and exactly how much to give. Um, the consensus guidelines will usually tell you 40 milligrams of prednisone is perfectly fine. If they're an extremist and they can't really tolerate POs or they're like breathing really fast or you're going to do something else to their airway, then IV methylprednisolone is completely fine. The onset of action is, Dr. Jen, when you give steroids? Uh, hours. How many? Yeah, so it's like six hours is the onset. The peak, the peak action is about 24 hours later. So it matters very little whether that's absorbed from the gut or directly given intravenously. So just kind of keep that in mind as you think about how to give um, the prednisone. It really doesn't matter to me, but if you're, you know, if you if you if you want to know the literature, that's what it says. So generally speaking, um, antibiotics should also be given. Now antibiotics should be given um, based on two out of three criteria, and that's increased dyspnea, increased sputum volume, or sputum purulence. So if you have two out of those three that the consensus guidelines suggest, you should give antibiotics. So these are kind of your mainstay of therapy, okay? Pharmacologic therapy. So your bronchodilator therapy, steroids, and antibiotics. Easy enough, right? Three things. Definitely going to give them. What about the others? You know, this movie was in 2001. It just felt like it was yesterday for some reason. Did you guys see this movie? It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Anyways, the others. Um, so, um, Dr. Puck, you just came from the PICU, right? Yeah. Do they still use this stuff yeah. over there? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like they, they kind of use it as like a last-ditch effort. If your you know, patient's getting close to being intubated, then they'll, they'll, they'll use the aminophilin. Mm -hmm. But uh, not every attending will use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's usually like one of the last things you do right before terbutaline and intubate. Great. Yeah, no, I... I huh? It's a magic thing. Right? Yeah. Magic. Certain attending. Oh, he loves that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Let me tell you one thing. He's a pediatrician but he's an intensivist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The AAP guidelines tell them and us to not use methylxanthines. <laughs> so I just, his own guidelines tell him not to use it. So I understand you're under his supervision, but I'll tell you why. They have a terrible, terrible side, of pro side effect profile. Um, you know, these methylxanthines are aminophilin or theophylline, and uh, you, and, 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 and it is reserved in some consensus guidelines based on almost no literature that it's a second or third line agent to save folks from intubation. Um, the outcomes are poor. Uh, there aren't that many studies, but the ones that are there show that they get um, a lot of side effects, um, including arrhythmias. So in our ED, stay away from that stuff. For kids and for adults, for everybody, just stay away from Theophylline, aminophilin, all you blossoming pediatricians out there, read the stuff for yourself. I'm giving you an overview. My wife's a pediatrician. She doesn't believe in this stuff either. All right. Magnesium. Okay. Magnesium has been used, as you know, in asthma, right? And when do we use magnesium in asthma? We use it for the severe asthmatic. It, 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 it's a smooth muscle um, relaxer. 
And um, it can and it has shown some benefit in severe asthmatics um, and can help um, prevent them from being intubated. And so there is some literature, although not very good, that suggests that we can use it for COPD. These are both obstructive type respiratory issues. And so the, the side effect profile of magnesium, unlike the methylxanthines, um, the therapeutic index or the window is, is pretty large. So it's, it's, it's a safe medicine and it's cheap. And so if it's safe and it's cheap, you know, and if it might work, uh, you know, you might want to try it. I'm not, I'm not promoting it. I don't have any stock in magnesium. I'm just saying uh, <laughs> stick with the, definitely stick with the other three, but this, this could be a possibility. Okay, oxygen. Now we talked about, Dr. Fuman was pondering, man, she came in at 88%. Does she have home oxygen? And then do we put her on oxygen here? She was breathing kind of fast. And then you were considering all these other differentials, which is absolutely appropriate. Could she be having an MI, ACS, and whatnot? And so do we, is there a happy medium? Let's say we're darn sure that she has COPD. She goes, this feels like my COPD exacerbation, Dr. Fruman. And you're like, okay, check. And so in that case, if, you're, if she doesn't need immediate um, mechanical ventilation, it is suggested that we should keep her oxygenation around the low 90s, okay? Now I know, um, and I'm one of them, I'm one of these emergency physicians too, that go, ah, bah humbug, that doesn't apply to us. We're in the, you know, the urgent, emergent issues. We're going to really load up those boxcars and make sure that um, they, we give them all the oxygen that they need. But remember, that COPD is not an oxygenation problem, right? It's a ventilation problem. So you don't, you can give, or give the patient as much oxygen as you want. You're not intubating them because they need oxygen. You're intubating because they can't ventilate, right? And so that's my caveat. And so if someone comes in and you have time and you don't need to intubate them right away, I really suggest to, um, to keep the pulse ox around 92. 90 to 92 is totally fine, whether that's a, like a mask or nasal cannula or whatever it might be. Now, you know, these folks don't always come with a diagnosis tattooed on their forearms. They also have all these concomitant issues such as a pneumonia and um, congestive heart failure. So it's not as easy as my lecture um, portends to be. So obviously use your judgment, but if you know, um, try to keep the oxygen at, at a lower um, but safe level. That's kind of where that oxygen disassociation curve is, right, Dr. Kinney? Right where it starts curving right there. And so any little bit of more of, of, of increasing your um, SpO2 doesn't really do much in terms of the hemoglobin disassociation curve. Was that what you were going to tell me? Well, I was going to ask. I was looking down and looked up, so I was your second bullet point. Reducing respiratory drive? Yeah. yeah Right, and then they kind of get somnolent, and then they stop breathing and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's true, it does happen. 
But it, it, it's not everyone, and there may be a subset of COPD patients that actually can benefit from more oxygen. We just don't know who that is. So at this point, let's just be judicious and be smart about it, case-by-case -case basis. Now, this is something we should use more often, almost on every single patient that has a respiratory issue that you're even thinking, well, they're kind of on the fence. I'm not really sure. Well, let's get aggressive really early. Right? Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. That's what NPPV stands for. That's what this is. Now, uh, let's see. Dr. Eldrafay. So you, you call down respiratory. And you go, you know, this woman probably, she's breathing at 25. She's satting in the um, mid-80s. What do, you, what do you tell the respiratory therapist when they say, all right, doc, I got this machine. What do you want me to do with this thing? I'm going to put it on. I know how to put it on. What settings do you want to put on it? Um, well, it's, it's positive pressure, so you want to choose how much positive pressure you want. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it would be like a, it's a PEEP setting, I guess, or the, the continuous pressure setting. Mm, that's a good point. Well, there's your PEEP and then so there's, there's, your, two. there's your PEEP and there's your continuous pressure setting. Right. You have. And so you would set them, I, I don't know what you would set them for a COPD, maybe like, 10 of continuous pressure, other pressure, and then uh, end expiratory pressure like 5 or 8, depending on whatever their demands are. But it's probably start at 5, 10 to 5. 10 to 5. Okay, so that's not a bad setting. I would, I would recommend you using zero PEEP. Absolutely no PEEP. But you want to give them a little bit of that pressure support. And what that really means is when they initiate a breath, when the patient initiates a breath, you want to give them a little bit of help so that they're getting tired, right? They're breathing, and when they're breathing fast, and they, start, they really start decompensating in terms of their pulse oximetry, that means they're tiring out, like Rod's tiring out right now. And so that's <laughs> tough. You need, you, know, it, you need to give him a little bit of, of, of that pressure to help him initiate that breath so his diaphragm can take a deep breath. But the PEEP, the PEEP can be extremely dangerous because the PEEP keeps the airways open, right? And what does this patient have? He's got a COPD exacerbation. COPD, which is an obstructive picture, which is a ventilation problem. This person is trying to get all the bloody air out of their lungs. And if you're trying to say, no, man, stop it, you're trying to like hold it back, um, probably not so good in COPD and asthma. Okay? So think about that. And, and I know, I, I, you know it took me years to kind of figure this out. And, and so if it makes sense to you, when you're talking about acute lung injury, that's a good option. And acute lung injury, I'm, it's a broad term that really means pneumonia, congestive heart failure, um, ARDS, um, pulmonary contusions. I, I don't think we'd ever put anyone on BiPAP um, for pulmonary contusions, but um, those kind of things. Then you, then you would use the PEEP. Very good choice. Okay, good. Now, um, I just want to talk a little, what, what do I have to say? Respiratory distress, hypercapnia, PCO2 greater than 55. Um, use it early in the patient's course. Um, you know, just, just be aggressive with these people because when you intubate these people, they do very, very poorly. Their mortality rate, I don't, I don't think because of the intubation, because they're really sick, uh, they're in the sicker category, their mortality rate goes from 1% to 2% with a regular COPD exacerbation to about 20% when they're intubated. And once again, some of it's because of the associated risks with um, 
um, uh, what's what's the right word? Ventilator associated pneumonias and stuff like that. But but mainly it's because they're sicker than the average COPD patient. So really try to prevent them from being intubated because that doesn't really solve the problem very much. If you are going to intubate the patient, um, how should we do so? RSI? Huh, I'm sorry. Sitting up. I don't know. Uh, you, you're talking more like an awake intubation uh, or. Perfect. Delayed sequence intubation is really good. That's a separate lecture. But your point is also very good because if they have congestive heart failure, they don't. They just don't tolerate laying flat. So do everything as as much as you possibly can, having them sit up, and then when you actually give them the automate and the succinylcholine, just 10 seconds later, you can lay them down. That's a very good point. And then the other point I was getting at is whether or not to use paralytics or not. Um, I think um, most people will say to use paralytics. All the data suggests you should use paralytics. Sometimes in the literature you will see that, um, that, you, that um, people try to do this awake intubation in that they only use ketamine and whatnot. And I think um, you can use etomidate if you like or ketamine. I know ketamine is used a lot and I would suggest that using it especially in asthma exacerbations, but in COPD probably some benefit too because the ketamine molecule actually um, bronchodilates. So, um, so I, would, I would use ketamine, I think. But then again, you're talking about a 70-year-old, and you're like, oh, is this congestive heart failure? What am I going to do? I'm getting all the sympathomimetics. So, you know, it's all a case-by-case -case basis, but think about some of that stuff. Now you've intubated the patient. Dr. Rendon, you've intubated the patient. What are we, what are we doing? Because we just intubate people, and we just walk away. We're like, we're done. Intubated somebody yesterday, <laughs> but exactly. So, what venesthetics do we really care about in this patient? Tidal volume. So, I would argue the most important vent setting is in this patient respiratory rate, because you don't want what. You know the answer. Stacking. You don't want breath stacking, right? Because those plateau pressures get up, you get barotrauma, you don't want that. So decrease that respiratory rate. Decre it may be, I don't know, 10 or 12. It sounds ridiculously low, but it may be 10 or 8. Because it's not an oxygenation problem, right? Their minute ventilation doesn't matter so much, except we want them to blow off all of their air, um, their PCO2, essentially. And then tidal volumes are going to be on the lower side, maybe 8 to 10 cc's per kg. And then the other setting on the vent, Dr. Kim, that we should consider? Uh, like peak, peak pressure and plateau pressure. Great. So we want to definitely look at the plateau pressures and make sure we're not having uh, breath stacking. What number do we get concerned about when, since you brought up plateau pressures? Plateau pressure, I mean, depends on the uh, setting. But, uh, but when do you get scared? You're like, this person has COPD or asthma. You intubate it, and then you're like, oh, plateau pressures are, and then and the, the respiratory tech tells you, Plateau pressures are this, Dr. Kim. You're like, that's nice. But when do you, like, when's your, when's your trigger to be like, oh, shh, I need to get something done here? Like 40? Yes. So 30 usually is the number of 40, definitely. So when you're at 30, then you've got to kind of worry if the breaths are going to keep stacking and you're, you're actually increasing your, your plateau pressures. Okay. The other setting? I to E ratio. Good. And what, what is it about the I to E ratio? Like, it has to do with, like, 
giving a patient more time to exhale. Perfect. Exactly. The normal IDE ratio is one to two, one to three. That means, you know, if for every one second of inhalation, they get two seconds of exhalation. Did I say that right? Okay. And if in COPD and asthma, you want to increase the expiratory time. So for every one second, you want four or five seconds. You want to go. You want them to breathe out. Okay. I'm going to keep my lecture really short here. Yes. You want to keep the respiratory rate low and also the tidal volume low. Yes. That seems to. Wouldn't that worsen your ventilation problem? In a way, but it's not. It, 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 it's 8 to 10 cc's per kg is, is your tidal volume. Um, that's probably appropriate. Um, remember, once again, this is ideal body weight, okay? Because oftentimes people will be larger, but their lungs aren't. Their lungs were made for a certain size. They decided they want to double or triple that size. But their lungs were made for a particular size. And so you have to consider ideal body weight. So yes, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but um, it isn't. And I'll tell you, I, I'll explain it a little bit more later. It, it's another lecture. But, but the most important thing is a respiratory rate. Um, and the other thing is once you've intubated the patient, you are going to allow this permissive hypercapnia. We don't care what the PCO2 level is anymore. Why? We're controlling their breathing. And all we want to do is give them some time to rest, get over the insult, whatever it might be, the pneumonia or the congestive heart failure combined with the COPD, and then we don't care. Their oxygen can remain at 90, 92. That's fine. But their PCO2 can go to 60 for all, I, for all we care, right? doesn't matter at that time. Good. Yeah. Just two things really quick. One, before, like this was a couple of months ago, I had to intubate a COPD patient, and then they're really hard to bag. We tried to intubate them. They were very big, and we had a very difficult intubation. And they're very, very hard to bag. And literally, you had to like go on their chest and help the air out because they were trapping because of, how, because of their COPD naturally. The other thing is in the ICU, always remember when you get calls about those COPDers who are intubated with troubles with the ventilator, what do you need to do? Go to bedside. Go to bedside and? Unconnect. Disconnect. Let them do their own breathing. As long as they're not paralyzed, let them breathe out and you can reconnect the vent. That's usually the yeah. first thing you can try to do. Yeah, very good point. Because we get very excited when we're intubating someone and the respiratory therapist and, and all of us included, we want a bag, we want a bag, we want a bag. And you're just like, you don't, it's not, don't worry, it's okay, you know. And then they start building up their plateau pressures, then they drop their blood pressure. And that's probably what's happening on the, in the ICU is sometimes they're breathing on their own or sometimes they're not adequately sedated or the settings aren't correct and they build up their plateau pressures, then they drop and they almost code. And Dr. Ibrahim is absolutely right, disconnect, go in and give them a barrel hug and you will actually literally hear the air come out of the endotracheal tube and you'll save their life. Okay, I'm gonna go a little bit faster, I'm sorry. Um, ABGs, um, just, just my sense of things, you guys know where I stand with ABGs. Um, you know, if you want them done, do them. They give, they don't give um, very, I, I, they're helpful, but 
Um, ABGs are, for me, are not necessary if you need to know whether or not you need to intubate somebody or whether someone's doing poorly, right? You can see them. You can see how they're doing. They're breathing hard. They're not talking to you anymore. They have mental status changes. All those kind of things are clinical indicators that things aren't going well. If you want the ABG, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's a painful procedure. It's not, it's not a very difficult procedure, but you can get pseudoaneurysms and stuff like that. And if you do use it, try to use some, you know, some local. I think that would be helpful for the patient if they're, you know, awake enough. Now, after they're intubated, I definitely believe in ABGs. I think that would be nice to get a post-intubation ABG to see where things are at. You know, um, you can, can, can detect acidemia and elevated PCO2 levels. Can you, we use a VBG instead? Um, maybe, maybe, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about that. So the VBG correlates really well with the ABG, and with their pHs correlate really well. What isn't correlated very well is their PCO2. Okay, you have to be careful. Now, there's some studies out there um, that show that sometimes you might be able to use a PCO2 cutoff on a VBG and say, well, if the PCO2 is definitely less than 35 then we don't need to worry about um, them getting worse. You know, that correlates well. But if, if it's over 35, it's really hard to tell. Anyways, um, the VBG is a simple test. It comes from the same, um, you know, the, the venous line that you have. So I, I usually get it when I'm worried about respiratory status or pH. Um, but, the, but just remember, the PCO2 doesn't correlate that well, okay? But the pH correlates well. BMP. Congestive heart failure, just so you know, seven times more likely in COPD patients. They just come from, they're cut from the same cloth, right? They have the same problems. It's, it's diabetes, hypertension, smoking, all that kind of stuff. So, so, the, so just remember, they go hand in hand. Um, you know, the BMP, the B-natriuretic peptide is released with cardiac stretching. That's usually when you have heart failure, but not always because you can have PEs and, and pulmonary hypertension and stuff like that, and then that could elevate your BMP, not to mention that it's renally excreted. So if you have elevated, um, uh, if, you, if you're end-stage renal disease or have chronic renal insufficiency, it certainly can, can confound things. So in, in summary, the BMP, uh, if you want to use it, that's fine, but it's not necessary, and it's certainly don't use it to rule in or rule out, okay? It's helpful if it's really high and helpful if it's really low, but where do we, we always get like a BMP of 300, and we're like, I don't know, what's their baseline? We're not really sure, so... Just something to think about. Capnography, I'm sorry you can't see this very well, but capnography we use a lot with procedural sedation. Um, we should probably use it in, in really sick respiratory patients too. It gives us some indication. Here's a normal um, kind of end tidal CO2 in the waveform, and you can see how this waveform is a little bit different. The problem with capnography right now is it's all qualitative. Qualitative, it's, it's pattern recognition. And soon, I think, there will be a quantitative measure that's going to be incorporated, much like our EKGs that says, oh, the QRS is this, the QT interval is that, you know, the, um, you know, and there may be something similar with capnography. And as we get better at this, this may be incorporated into our education and incorporated into our clinical practice. So I really see this coming um, forward a little bit more. I think we had a talk on this four or six months ago. Um, it was a very interesting talk. But it's, it's um, oh, and, uh, and here's another thing. The end tidal CO2, um, it also varies a little bit with the PCO2. So you have to be a little careful with this, okay? So end tidal CO2 does not equal PCO2, okay? But it's mainly this pattern recognition that's more important.
So when you look at this and you go, oh, wait, the end tidal CO2 is 30. I don't know if the PCO2 is 30. I don't think so. It's probably higher because um, they're not getting all that air out, right? It's just, it's kind of, they're taking these really shallow breaths and, and it's not, it's not coming from their alveoli, which is where the PCO2, PCO2 is high. You see, is that, is that, I'm sorry, this is just for COPD patients or in general, do you that in titles? Not necessarily. Not necessarily, but especially an obstructive picture. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's at least 30, at least it's 30, but you don't know how high it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Disposition. Um, just very quickly. Uh, there's really no decision rule in in making in in, in COPD patients. So unfortunately, um, like much like in pneumonia, we have some decision rules, right? Curb 65 and the the port score and stuff like that. But we don't have one, and that's that's because it's kind of tough. Um, so th this is a no-brainer, but really. Make your decision on common sense stuff that you do all the time. What's their age, comorbidities, how have they responded to what you've given them, and the severity of their disease. So this is all common sense ED stuff that we do to every single patient that comes into the emergency department. And this is the stuff that, that there, unfortunately, there's no decision rule. There's some kind of in the making, um, but um, you know, they're, they're not that good. Of course, the ICU for someone who's intubated, severely dyspneic, or have altered mental status. Okay, if they're altered, you might want to just intubate them in the ED, but um, they're probably not going to do that well. So back to our case. So this is our this is our lady. She's 78. She's got heart problems, chronic bronchitis, has COPD. Uh, sorry, has shortness of breath and palpitations times two days. We've given her bronchodilators, steroids, antibiotics. We even started her on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and we used what, Ahmed? What was our settings? Uh, we said like 10. Yeah, and, and no PEEP. Okay, and we actually treated her, um, like Dr. Fruman said, with nitrates and aspirin because we weren't sure if this was a congestive heart failure or ACS. So we kind of just threw the whole kit and caboodle at this woman, and she did much better and, and went home. Um, Erica also considered alternate diagnosis, like PE, and I'm not saying every single person who comes in like this needs a CTPA, but um, at least consider it. And we admitted her to telemetry. She did great. Okay, question number one. Here we go. Let's see. Yes, this is on your phones, guys. So let's see how it goes. Your iPhone or your iPad. It's asking you to like join a session. Here you go. Oh, shucks. Why did it do that? Can you guys see on yeah. your phone? Okay, I'm going to read it. Um, so unfortunately, um, it's not projected. I can see it here, but not over there. You can see the questions? Okay, I'll read it for those who haven't logged in. It says, which of the following are not recommended in a COPD exacerbation? You've got to do it in nine seconds. Antibiotics, non-positive pressure in uh, ventilation, steroids, bronchodilator therapy, or methylxanthine therapy. Sorry, time ran out, so if you didn't do it, you, you might be good. But everyone picked uh, methylxanthine. That's, that's some power, guys. That's some power. Now. Okay. Uh, okay, I did that. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, got it. 
Which of the following is true? Um, let me see. I'll let you read it really quick, and then I'll let you. I'll put it on your phone here. It's a little tricky, but we'll get it right. Uh, here we go. PMP is a highly specific test for CHF. VBGPHs correlate well with ABGPHs. The most important vent setting in mechanically ventilated COPD patients is tidal volume. Capnography is only helpful quantitatively in patients with COPD. All right. Well, let's see. Um, where is the close? Everyone done with that question? Close the polling. Oh, we got 92% say VBGPHs correlate with ABGPHs, and capnography is only helpful quantitatively in patients with COPD. Okay. And I'm going to go back one more time to question number three. I'm not going to give you the answers now, but I'll give them to you later. Which of the following is an ideal treatment plan for a severe COPD exacerbation? Uh, we have antibiotics and bronchodilator therapy, steroids, um, positive pressure ventilation, or all of the above. Tell me when you, you guys are all done. Yeah. All right. Woohoo! You guys kicked butt. Kicked butt. All right. Very good. Well, that's all I have. Do you have any questions? Yeah, just since you brought up my last question about antibiotics and COPD. Yeah. Um, when, do, when do you like to start them? I mean, obviously, they have fevers and stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. So the antibiotics and COPD is if they have increased, dys the two out of the three, increased dyspnea, increase in the amount of sputum, or the change in if, if, it looks, if their sputum looks more purulent. So if they have two out of the three, and so I said, obviously, they came in with shortness of breath. And then you go, are you, are you coughing up more stuff? Yes, antibiotics. Does, your, does it look, and then you can say, well, is green more purulent? Is, it's more yellow instead of white. You know what? It's antibiotics. And so I, I don't, you know, purulence is, we think of like when we drain an abscess, but I don't think generally people, people cough up that. They, you know, they cough up kind of maybe greenish stuff or yellowish green stuff. I don't really focus on the color so much, but the change in the quality and the quantity. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to intubate them, but if you have to, you, you can. And then the same strategy, and you're referring to the uh, lower use lower volumes with higher inspired eye times. Yes. So yeah, we, we kind of went up. We higher volumes with short eye times. Asthma patients and COPD patients are kind of in the same category. So they're all in the obstructive um, realm. And so the tidal volume isn't so important. The respiratory rate is really important. So you want to really slow down the respiratory rate. Really slow it down. I'm talking eight, you know, eight times a minute. And then you want to um, increase the IDE ratio. And what I mean by increase is... Um, to allow more expiration yeah, more? Okay. for both, for both asthma and COPD. Okay. It's exactly the same. Okay, because I thought before you were saying higher eye time, you showed low eye, super low eye time. 
Super, yeah, very short eye time. The same volume goes in there, but it goes in in a shorter period of time. So the same tidal volume goes in, but just a shorter period of time. So instead of one second, it might be a half a second where you get, you know, 400 mLs of, of oxygen or air. But then the, the second part of it is they get more time to breathe it out. They go, and that's exactly the same with COPD and asthmatics. Exactly. And finally, you, you brought up a very good point, is don't forget to continue therapy when they're intubated, right? Because something got them there. So continue your bronchodilator therapy and all of the rest. Um, so I will stop there. I do have one other thing. I have a bunch of references. You guys can look at this later. Um, but uh, let me stop my video.